William Culbertson, he served as the fifth president of the Moody Bible Institute. And he is quoted as saying, It is important to start right, but it is imperative to end well. It's important to start right, but it is imperative to end well. He served in that role as president for 23 years. Among the things that he did, and this is only one that could be listed, he introduced the missionary aviation program to the school. And it has been said that in 1971, shortly before this man passed away, he quoted a favorite Bible verse, Revelation 19, verse 6. According to the account that I read, he said, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. And then quietly, he said, God, God, yes. And those were his final words before, as one writer put it, he saw Jesus face to face. That is a depiction of finishing well, at least crossing the finish line, being right at the end of the race and crossing the finish line well. And before us today, we get another glimpse of someone crossing the finish line well. We're not up to the finish line. That would come a little bit after this epistle was written. But Paul is approaching the finish line. For all intents and purposes, he had said to Timothy, I have finished the race. And we are beholding a man who was called by God, by grace, finish the race well. And he was on the brink of entering into glory. The road to the finish line, as you have seen in our study of 2 Timothy, was not an easy road to traverse. He's in chains at this moment, perhaps in the Mamertine prison, perhaps in a dungeon-like cell, and he is chained. But it's not only that he was in chains, it's not only that he was regarded as an evildoer, it's not only those things. He was abandoned largely, though not completely. Earlier in our study of 2 Timothy, we saw in chapter 1 how he said that all who were in Asia, the province of Asia, had forsaken him. We get over to chapter 4 and we remember that we studied the man Demas. He was a man who had been a fellow laborer of the Apostle Paul. He was somebody that Paul would have expected to stand by him. But he forsook Paul. Strong language in the text of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. He forsook him, having loved this present world, or more literally, this present age, and he went to Thessalonica. But he wasn't the only one that forsook the Apostle Paul, and neither were all who were in Asia. The Apostle Paul said that at his first defense, and the idea would be that there would be those that he had ministered alongside, perhaps others who had known him, who would come and offer some supplementary testimony, some support of the Apostle Paul publicly. But he said at his first defense, no one stood by him. Well, some of the reasons for that we see in 2 Timothy 4. Some people had gone elsewhere. Luke was likely in transit, and Luke would make his way to where Paul was. But at the end of the day, on that day, no one was by him. The Apostle Paul's experience fit in many ways Jesus' mold. The Savior knew what it was like to be abandoned by disciples. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 56... There, in the second half of that verse, we are told, Then all the disciples forsook Him and fled. The Savior is the one who cried out upon the cross, quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's that same word that's used. When you look at the Septuagint translation of that verse, 
It's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. It's the same word that Jesus used in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. It does appear, and I touched on this a few weeks ago when we were studying the verses before this, that the Apostle Paul had Psalm 22 in view. And how fitting it would be as he was suffering that he would think about the suffering of the Savior and the prophecy of the Savior's suffering as recorded in Psalm 22, a kind of internal witness to the sufferings of the cross. Paul was the one, according to Philippians chapter 3, who desired to know Christ in the power of His resurrection, but also in the fellowship of His sufferings. So it was, an, it was a hard road leading up to this finish line. And he was alone, but we know that he was not completely alone, right? He was alone, yet not alone, because the Lord stood by him and strengthened him so that the proclamation that he needed to make would be made fully to the Gentiles. He was strengthened, so he needed strength. The Apostle Paul was not strong enough in in himself to accomplish the task that was set before him, but Jesus stood by him. In the language of the text, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the language of Jesus strengthening him literally connotes Jesus inputting strength, as it were, into him. So there is Jesus beside him, and there is Jesus strengthening him. And as a result of Jesus' presence and the strength that he provides, Paul is able to make the proclamation boldly and clearly. He testified to the Lord Jesus Christ before the rulers and the judges, whatever magistrates there were there before him. Apparently, one of the reasons why people forsook the Apostle Paul was because it was a dangerous thing to be associated with the Apostle Paul in, of all places, Rome in those days. Nero had turned his eyes towards persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Leading up to those days, it seems, and it seems at this point, the, in, the intensification of that, impure, that persecution increased. It's interesting, when you look at Acts chapter 27, verse 24, the angel that tells the Apostle Paul that he must give an account or he must stand before Caesar, that verse likely suggests that prior to this second imprisonment, that he had stood before Caesar Nero. So there was likely at some point an account where he was before Caesar and apparently during that first Roman imprisonment, he was acquitted. But this time around was different. And who knows, perhaps Caesar Nero was there on that day with whatever judges and rulers were there during that first hearing. And Paul is empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak the truth with love and proclaim Jesus Christ and the Gospel. To speak a little bit to the context that Paul found himself in and the vicious persecution that Nero unleashed Upon the Christians in Rome, the 3rd century Christian uh, Tertullian is quoted as writing the following, Examine your records. There you will find that Nero was the first that persecuted this doctrine, particularly then when after subduing all the East, he exercised his cruelty against all at Rome. We glory in having such a man the leader in our punishment, for whoever knows him can understand that nothing was condemned by Nero unless it was something of great excellence. The church historian uh, Eusebius, he had written that Paul was beheaded under, during the rule of Nero. And despite all these things that were up against Paul, I want you to see that. I want to paint that picture because I want you to have that backdrop in mind as we come into our text. 
Because despite being abandoned, despite being chained, despite a forthcoming persecution and martyrdom, despite all of that, the Apostle Paul is not embittered. Think about it. He thought about those who forsook him at his first hearing. And what did he say? May the Lord not hold it against them. So he's not embittered by what's going on. Nor is he just consumed with what's going on. He's not writing to Timothy saying, I can't believe what Nero is doing. Do you know what Nero is doing? Do you know how unjust it was that Nero did what he did to me? And he's just consumed with Nero and Rome. He's not that. What is he consumed with? You go through this epistle, read it from beginning to the end, and you'll see at the end of the day what he's consumed with. It's not that he doesn't touch on other matters, but he's consumed with the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's consumed with the gospel. And wait till you see when we get there that Paul, despite his circumstances, isn't seen as complaining, yet quite the opposite. But we'll see that when we get there. We begin in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, where we read, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul, having considered the Lord's past help in the previous verse, how the Lord had stood by him and strengthened him, having considered that in the previous verse, now he anticipates the Lord's future help. It's as though that glance back to the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ was there with him and strengthening him fanned the flame of faith that he would be helped in the days ahead. In this verse, we see that Paul anticipated the Lord's future help. He called attention to two things that he was confident that the Lord would do. They're essentially two sides of the same coin. And they're connected to one glorious conclusion. To be clear, when you look at this verse and you read it and you see Paul say, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom, Paul is not anticipating physical deliverance. He is not anticipating some sort of temporal you know, freedom. That's not what he's anticipating. How do we know that? Because we saw in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, that he said the time of his departure was at hand. He knew he was already being poured out as a drink offering. He knew his martyrdom was right before his face, as it were. He was there and he was ready. His bags were packed, as it were. And he was ready to make the journey into the kingdom. So he's not talking about some physical deliverance. He's talking here about a more important type of deliverance and an ultimate type of safety. He's talking about a spiritual protection and eternal salvation. Now, not surprisingly, in this, Paul is following the train of thought of his Lord. Again, to refer back, as we did a few weeks back, to refer back to the Olivet Discourse. Think of what Jesus told His disciples. He told them that persecution was coming. In rather strong language, He told them that they would be betrayed. Luke 21, verse 16. He told them that they would be hated by everyone. Luke 21, verse 17. He told them that some of them, from among them, there would be those who would be put to death. Luke 21, verse 16. But then in verse 18, he told them that not a hair of their heads would be lost. 
And you're like, how can he say that? You just told them that they were going to be betrayed, they were going to be hated from among them. Basically, all of them were going to die and were going to give their lives. How could you tell them, and yet not a hair of your head will be lost? Jesus obviously knew what he said in the two preceding verses. It's not like he forgot what he said in verse 16 and verse 17 when he got to verse 18. Well, what is Jesus doing there? Well, he's speaking in language that connotes that they would suffer no eternal loss and they would be spiritually preserved, not to mention ultimately glorified. So when Paul wrote here, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his kingdom, let's note a few things here. First, let's note the subject of the verbs. The Lord. It's the Lord who would rescue Paul. It's the Lord who would bring Paul safely into his kingdom. Note the subject of the verbs. Where's Paul's confidence? It's not in Paul. It wasn't like Paul was like, you know, for such a time as this, here I am. And the Lord, having saved me, has entrusted me with the responsibility to keep myself unto that day. No. His confidence was in the grace of God. Paul had a mindset from grace to glory. And grace all the way through to glory. And grace, by the way, forever and ever in glory. Because in the ages to come, by the way, according to Ephesians chapter 2, God will forever demonstrate the riches of His grace towards us in Christ Jesus. From grace to glory and never-ending grace. So Paul's confidence was not in himself. I read this verse and I think of Paul seeing himself like a sheep which would be a very biblical, biblically appropriate metaphor, right? And seeing himself as knowing he will get to his destination because the shepherd is alongside of him. And the shepherd's got a rod with which he could, you know, dash all those wolves and lions that would seek to destroy the soul of the apostle Paul. And the shepherd has a staff with which he could direct the sheep and make sure to make sure that the sheep stays on the path. So you notice here that he says the Lord will rescue him. He looked to the Lord for his ultimate well-being. If I was the enemy, just as an aside, one of the things I would love to do with every person who professes faith in Christ, and that is a legitimate Christian, I would love for them to take their eyes off of themselves and to trust themselves with preserving themselves. Because that will not lead to Christ being glorified and that will not lead to you having peace unless you have an overly high estimate of yourself and then you're in an even more precarious position because now all of a sudden you are prideful and you know that before pride or shortly thereafter pride comes the fall and destruction. He trusted the Lord to rescue him from every evil deed. The prepositional phrase here is rather inclusive. From every evil deed. I love the language. It is inclusive. Whether it's the works of the flesh generally, or whether it's the work of Satan or Alexander specifically, the Apostle Paul trusted the Lord to rescue him from every evil deed. To rescue him from the unforgiveness that could assail him perhaps when he finds himself abandoned by those who should have been close to him. He's going to be rescued. He anticipates that from every evil deed. It's as though Paul took language from the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, or as connoted in some translations, the evil one. And he expected the Lord to fulfill that petition in his life. He's going to preserve me. He's going to protect me and rescue me from every evil deed. 
He knew that the Lord would rescue him, delivering him from apostasy, and even ultimately, by the way, from the presence of any evil deed. Like He ultimately rescued him from even the presence of evil when he brought him forth into the kingdom. And the Lord would bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now, the word translated will bring safely here is the Greek word that could readily be translated and is most commonly translated as save. It's as though the Apostle Paul is saying, he will save me into his heavenly kingdom. So the one who saved me in the past will save me into his heavenly kingdom. The idea here being that Jesus will complete the work that he began. He who saved my soul when I was justified by grace alone through faith alone, he will make sure that I cross the finish line. He will make sure I reach the culmination of my salvation. The Lord will save me into his heavenly kingdom. Paul knew that Christ would get him home. And for our own uh, consideration, I want to just remind you that Jesus never has and he never will lose any that the Father has given him. He has a perfect record. He's never missed. He's never dropped someone. He's never said, oh wait, where's that one that, I, that the Father gave me? Uh, I think I left them somewhere you know, over here and I don't know if they're going to make it home. It's never happened. It never will. Everyone that the Father has given the Son will be held tightly by the Son. will enter into the heavenly kingdom and will be raised up on the last day. Jesus speaks to that. In John's Gospel, John chapter 6, verse 39, he says, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So He assuredly brings all of His people into His heavenly kingdom as the day of resurrection is awaited. So where do they go in the midst of waiting? Well, Paul speaks to that here. He says that he will be brought safely into the heavenly kingdom of his Lord. Oh, that's a glorious picture right there. Don't you love just thinking about what's going on in the heavenly kingdom right now? It's not like this ethereal place where there's just like, you know, floating spirits and everybody's just like, you know, like kind of discombobulated and waiting for the day of resurrection and nobody knows what's going on. No, it's a beautiful kingdom. Worship is happening right now. Celebration is happening right now. Communion is happening right now. There are spirits of just men made perfect that are gathering with angels and they are glorifying the living God in the presence of God. There is a kingdom and Paul knew a little bit of what that kingdom was like. You see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He caught a glimpse of paradise as he describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This kingdom is a heavenly kingdom and Christ is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who is the King. And indeed, He has a heavenly kingdom from which He is reigning. Earthly kings were to have Paul persecuted and ultimately executed. But the resurrected king, in the midst of their persecution and execution, was saving him into his heavenly kingdom. They're executing him. Christ, though, is protecting him, holding him, and saving him into the heavenly kingdom. In light of that, it's not surprising what comes next. 
It's so fitting. I love this. And I think there's so much instruction for us from this. So in light of that, in light of Paul thinking in verse 17, how the Lord stood by him and strengthened him, and he thinks about how the Lord Jesus helped him to accomplish the ministry that was given to him. That's verse 17. In light of the confidence that he has that the Lord will rescue him from every evil deed. He won't, he won't commit himself to apostasy and he won't turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be brought safely into the heavenly kingdom. Brings him to this point. He says, to him, or perhaps more literally, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now there are a number of things I want us to notice here. First, notice to whom the Apostle Paul is directing glory. Paul had not infused himself with strength. Paul would not keep himself to the end. He's praising the One. He's saying glory to the One that He knew would keep Him. He's directing glory to the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ in this context. Christ was the One who infused Paul with strength. Christ would deliver him from every evil work. All the glory for Paul's salvation and all the glory for his safe arrival into the heavenly kingdom would go to his Savior, would go to his God. Now, notice, secondly, this glory is not a fleeting glory. This is a glory that the Lord deserves forever and ever, into the ages and ages. So it isn't just like, you know, you did this good thing for me, Lord Jesus. You're going to preserve me and you're going to bring me into the kingdom. You deserve glory for a little while. No, you deserve glory forever and ever and ever. Every saint who is in heaven, in the heavenly kingdom, every saint that will enjoy what Psalm 16 describes as the fullness of joy in the presence of God, every saint forever will give glory to God. It's never going to get old. Your salvation will never get old. If it feels old in this moment, it's because you have a fallen frame that we have to fight against, that fallen nature that we have. But let me tell you, when you are in the presence of Almighty God, there will never be a moment in which you are bored rejoicing in the salvation that has been granted to you. You will forever celebrate and say, Glory to Him forever and ever and ever. Third thing I want us to notice here is that this is a witness to Jesus' deity. There are so many, so many explicit verses in these scriptures that witness to Jesus' deity. And then there are some that are rather implicit. Some might argue even those implicit ones are pretty explicit. While here we have a doxology that is directed to the Lord, and the Lord in this case appears to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Now oftentimes when we see doxologies, you could reference, for instance, Romans 16, 27, or Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21, we see doxologies to the Father through the Son. That's how we often see the doxologies work themselves out. But here we have a doxology to the Son, and it is appropriate, because He is truly God and truly man. So here we have an implicit witness to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth, uh, to use language from one writer, look at how Paul is going out. Singing the doxology, as it were. <laughs> so here he is. He's on the brink of execution. He's on the brink of having his head, according to the historical records that we look at outside of the Scriptures, on the chopping block. 
And he's rejoicing that he's going to be preserved. You're like, no, you're going to be executed. He's like, no, yes, well, I am going to be executed, but I am being preserved because the moment that that happens, I'm going to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. It's the moment I've been longing for. I have sought to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. This is what I was created for. My mission is done, and I get to behold the one who saved me and loved me. I've seen him on the Damascus Road, and granted, he stood by me before, and I know him, but I can't wait for the moment to be in his presence. It's no surprise that with the spirit wrought faith that the Apostle Paul had, that he would be rejoicing in this moment as he thinks about the preservation of the Lord Jesus Christ and entering into the heavenly kingdom. I do also want to note some, um, a, a pattern that we see working itself out here that I think is instructive for us. We are told by the Apostle Paul in, in places as he's writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit in uh, Philippians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians 11 that we are to imitate his example or join in following his example. Well, what can we learn from his example right here? There seems to be a kind of outworking of him thinking about truth. He's thinking about the preservation of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life, how the Lord is preserving him. He's thinking about being brought safely into the heavenly kingdom. So he's thinking about biblical truth, right? He's thinking back to how the Lord stood by him and strengthened him. Now he's thinking about how the Lord will continue to preserve and protect him. And that thinking doubtless has led to two things right here. Feeling and doing. Feeling, I'm reading into the text, I know. But I don't think that's an unfeeling statement that he makes right here. (laughs) When he says, to him be the glory forever and ever, there's feeling there. There's joy, there's gratitude, there's appreciation. So he's thinking rightly about biblical truth. And now there's that feeling. What is he doing? He's praising. The praising is coming from a renewed mind. The praising is coming from a heart that's inflamed by biblical truth. And what is he doing? He is doing what he is made to do. He's praising his Savior. And so often we should be reminded that that's how it works. Right? That we have our minds infused with truth. That that truth inflames our affections. And then what we do ought to be a result of what we know and how what we know has affected our hearts and minds. It's a great paradigm to be aware of and to look for and to think through. But there's still more to notice here as well. I want us to also notice how the Apostle Paul, fifthly, um, he's on the brink of martyrdom, and yet he seems to be joyful I kind of touched on that in the previous verses, but I just want to hone in on that. He's on the brink of martyrdom, but yet he appears to be joyful. And what's the immediate cause for that joy? It appears to be most immediately, in light of the things I've already said, I want to add one additional thing, kind of expand upon it, the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven. And think about it this way. If the hope of heaven produces such joy... What will the reality of heaven produce? I mean, if you can have such joy thinking about what awaits you as a son or daughter of God like the Apostle Paul did in this moment, and be filled with joy despite abandonment, despite chains, and despite a forthcoming execution, what manner of joy awaits the believer in heaven? And as encouragement for every son or daughter of God who's going through a season of affliction, And doubtless in this life, this world will be filled with tribulation. Make no mistake. Uh, We go through this world and it's like walking through a furnace. 
Um, and at times that furnace gets hotter than others. And at times we feel like, oh, the temperature's turned down. There's a cool breeze. I'm enjoying it. And the next thing you know, okay, the furnace got turned up again. That's what life in a fallen world so often feels like. And I think Spurgeon's counsel at this point would be of great encouragement to the body of Christ here. The joys of heaven will surely compensate for the sorrows of earth. The joys of heaven will surely compensate for the sorrows of earth. How amazing is it to think that you can overhype so many things. My, uh, my wife has often told me, when, when I'm excited about something, I have to be careful of not like, overhyping it. Because I love hyping up things that I'm really excited about. I don't do it just for the sake of doing it. Like, oh, this will be fun, and let me just hype up something for the sake of hyping up something. If I'm excited about something, I want to keep telling you how great it's going to be. But I'm not going to tell you what it is because I want you just to be so excited about it. And then when you have it, you're going to be so excited when you experience it. And so I've been warned by people that love me and know me, easy with the hype. Like, really think through what you are hyping up. Let me tell you this. When it comes to heaven, I cannot overhype heaven. You cannot overestimate the joy of heaven. That you are not going to get to heaven as a son or daughter of God who has trusted Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and say, I just really thought it'd be better. <laughs> I was expecting more. I was expecting greater brightness. I was expecting more colors. I was expecting... You're not going to say any of that. You cannot. You cannot overhype or overestimate the joy that awaits you, son or daughter of God. Paul had a glimpse of that. And no wonder why he's praising despite his circumstance. No wonder why. Now we reach uh, the close of this epistle where Paul sends, and there's a lot going on in, the, in these ending verses. He's going to, going, to, going to send final greetings. He's going to give Timothy news of some friends. He's going to give Timothy uh, essentially a, a final charge of sorts. He's going to send greetings from certain persons and he's going to give a closing benediction or two. And so we're going to make our way through this. We're going to take uh, some brief looks at these verses beginning at verse 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. So here Paul is telling Timothy to send greetings on his behalf to beloved brethren. He uses that word greet. It's in the imperative form and it's used many times in Paul's epistles. He's telling Timothy, like, send these greetings. Make sure you send these greetings to these beloved brethren. Paul was not an others-centered person. Paul was a God-centered person. But he was so others-minded. And you see that in his epistles. By one commentator's count, I didn't count these, but by one commentator's count, he uses this word to greet in the 16th chapter of uh, his epistle to the Romans 21 times. And if you know that last chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, you know he's sending greetings to this one, greetings to that one, greetings to this one. And in that we're instructed. He has love for the body of Christ. He's thinking about his brethren. Tell them I said hello. <laughs> and doubtless it was more than that. It was familial. It was affectionate. But he's thinking about them and he sends greetings to these two. Prisca and Aquila. Prisca is the shortened form of the name Priscilla. This is the Priscilla and Aquila. That is the same couple that the Apostle Paul met in Corinth, having been driven out, them having been driven out of Italy slash Rome with the Jews as a result of a decree that was issued by Claudius. You see that in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. 
They shared the same trade as the Apostle Paul. Remember, the Apostle Paul was a tent maker by trade. Well, they shared the same trade. You see that in Acts chapter 18, verse 3. These were people that opened their home to the Apostle Paul. They are quite an example of a godly couple. If you want a good model of what a godly couple looks like, we don't get a whole bunch of um, text about these two, but just kind of watch this as it unfolds. So they opened up their home to the Apostle Paul so that he could do the ministry that he was called to do. So while he was with them, he's reasoning each Sabbath in the synagogues, persuading Jews and Greeks that Jesus was the Christ. You see that in Acts chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. Well, they set sail with the Apostle Paul to Syria. When they come to Ephesus, they end up staying in Ephesus, and the Apostle Paul continues on his ministerial journey. He goes on from there to Caesarea. So you see that a little bit later on in Acts chapter 18. They were the same marital team who explained the way of God more accurately to Apollos. We see that at the end of chapter uh, 18 of Acts. Remember that man who was mighty in the scriptures? But he needed to be more fine-tuned in some places, um, theologically speaking. They are identified as Paul's fellow co-workers. You see that in Romans chapter 16, verse 3. And Paul even says that they risked their necks for him. Romans chapter 16, verse 4. Quick parenthetical thought. One of the reasons... Not the main one, but one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to heaven is because there's so much more to know. What did that look like when they risked their necks for the Apostle Paul? Uh, like, like, just specifically, what did that occasion look like? There's so much that happened in the early church. When we see the names of the people that are listed in this text, people who carried the cross, as it were, and laid their lives down for Jesus Christ and for others, and there are so many stories that aren't accounted for in the Scriptures. God has given us what He wants us to know, but oh, there's so much more to hear about. And perhaps heaven will entail hearing some of those stories. In Paul's letter to the church of Corinth, we find that there was a church that met in the house of uh, Aquila and Priscilla, 1 Corinthians 16, 19. And apparently at the time of Paul's writing of this epistle, there they are with Timothy in Ephesus. And then we see the greetings that Paul sent to the household of Onesiphorus. Now, if you remember, this is the man that we considered earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 1. We don't know much about this man, but what we know is Quite amazing. This is the man who had a history of faithfulness. He was the one who ministered to Paul at Ephesus. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. He was the man who was bold and courageous. Paul described him as a man who was unashamed of his chains. So remember how Paul said so many people forsook him? And apparently they were scared of being identified with the Apostle Paul? Not Onesiphorus. He was not ashamed. He's identifying with Paul. He's there with Paul. He even, as Paul noted in 2 Timothy chapter 1, oftentimes refreshed Paul. Onesiphorus was like a cool glass of water on a hot and humid day. That's how the Apostle Paul looked at him. It wasn't only like that. He was also a man who was persistent. He walked in the good works that God prepared beforehand for him to do, even when it was hard. You get that in 2 Timothy chapter 1 as well, because Paul said that when he came to Rome, he eagerly searched for the Apostle Paul. It wasn't an easy thing, presumably, to find the Apostle Paul. And here Paul is sending greetings to this man's family, who apparently was where Timothy was. And in light of the fact that Paul references them earlier, as well as referencing them here, 
you clearly um, can see that they were a believing household. And we shouldn't underestimate the sacrifice that they undertook as a family. We don't know all the historical details of what happened with Onesiphorus. You could listen to the message I preached on 2 Timothy 1. I think it was verses 15 through 18 concerning him. But think of the sacrifice that that family undertook in having this husband and father leave from where he was to travel to Rome and risk his life for the Apostle Paul. We not only commend Onesiphorus in that, we commend his family, and apparently a believing family at that, in being joined in the mission and in the ministry. In verse 20, Paul continued writing by providing some updates about a couple of ministry partners and friends. He says, Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Okay, so first we're told that Erastus remained in Corinth. Now, we're not entirely sure who this Erastus is. Is this the Erastus who is mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 23, who was identified as the treasurer of the city? Maybe. Is this the Erastus who was the one who ministered with the apostle Paul uh, in Macedonia and alongside the, of Timothy as well? You see that in Acts chapter 19, verse 22? Maybe. I do think, interestingly, in 1929... In Corinth, a Latin inscription was found reading, and there are different ways this could be translated. I'll give you one translation. Erastus, commissioner of public works, bore the expense of this pavement. While this is not necessarily an archaeological slam dunk, and let me just tell you, I would love to rattle off a list, and it would be very long, of the archaeological slam dunks that testify to the validity of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are self-attesting, but there are so many corroborating witnesses that witness to the historical reality of, say, Pontius Pilate, or whether it's Hezekiah, or whether it's Goliath of Gath. There are so many. And one of the things that, interestingly, so often happens in the archaeological world is that people will say, there's no such person as Pontius Pilate. We don't see any evidence of Pontius Pilate. And then all of a sudden, archaeology comes around, they do some more ex- excavation, they're like, okay, well, yeah, okay, Pontius Pilate was there. But there's no such record of David. Okay, well, there's, okay, there's records that testify to David. There's no such record of this or that. And what you come to find over and over again is that the scriptures are proved right. They just are true. But whether it's archaeology or whether it's historical evidence or whatever, the truthfulness of the scriptures are corroborated so often. Now, this may be, this may be, Uh, That inscription that I referenced, a witness to the reality of this man, who was a treasurer, commissioner of public works in the city of Corinth. Then we come to Trophimus. Paul said, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. This was the Trophimus who was from the province of Asia. Acts 20 verse 4, he traveled with Paul from Greece to Troas. He was a Gentile and an Ephesian. Um, He was the man that the Jews accused Paul of taking into the temple. It was a false allegation. But those were the allegations that led to his first Roman imprisonment. So, he likely had intentions of traveling with Paul to wherever Paul was. Maybe he was going with Paul um, and just got sick before Paul got arrested. Some think he might have gotten sick maybe shortly after Paul got arrested in the midst of the travels to Rome. But for whatever reason, um, or whatever the details were historically, he was became sick and was left at Miletus. A couple things I want us to note here. I think this is important. Number one, I want us to see that the Apostle Paul was not able to heal 
according to his own will at will. Right? God used the Apostle Paul to do many mighty works. You go through the book of Acts, you see some of the record of that. But he couldn't heal at will according to his own will. It had to be according to the will of God, first thing to note. Because otherwise, he would have just said, oh, I have this amazing power, watch what I can do. Boof, trophy miss is better. No, not that he would have done it like that, but he didn't have the power to do it at his own will. Second thing I want you to note is just like the uh, occasion we saw in 1 Timothy, when Timothy was sick, he had frequent stomach ailments or illnesses. Paul told Timothy, do not drink only water, but drink some wine for your frequent stomach illnesses. Notice he did not tell Timothy there, Timothy, don't you know that healing is just provided for everybody in the atonement? Therefore, you should just believe better and you'll be well. So Timothy, believe better and you will be well. He didn't tell Timothy that. And in like manner, there's nothing negative connoted about Trophimus being left sick in Miletus. He's not saying this as a confession to Timothy, like, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus, and I know I should have been able to heal him, I just didn't have the faith working at that moment. Or, Trophimus was sick in Miletus, and he should have been better because he should have believed that healing was his already. No. In God's gracious providence... Trophimus was left sick in Miletus. Now, Paul might have anticipated Trophimus being with him. Doubtless, Paul anticipated a lot of other people who weren't with him being with him. And maybe Trophimus would have been with Paul and he would have forsaken Paul. We don't know all the details. But according to God's gracious providence, the one who works all things together for good for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose, Trophimus was left sick in Miletus. And that would work to the eternal good of Trophimus, and that would work to the eternal good of the Apostle Paul. Well, in light of that, notice contextual connections here. Paul mentions a couple of other people that aren't with him, right? So in light of saying, yeah, Erastus remained at Corinth, and Trophimus I left sick at Miletus, in light of that, it's not surprising what Paul says again to Timothy. Verse 21, make every effort to come before winter. It's as though he's saying, like, the people that you would think Timothy would be here for different reasons aren't here. He's already outlined a whole bunch of them. Um, so he says, make every effort to come to me before winter. I think part of what's going on here is he doesn't want Timothy's travels to be impeded by the winter because it would be harder to travel. In some cases, ships just would not travel out of ports during that time because it would be so dangerous. So he's probably telling Timothy, make every effort to come before winter. We know the Apostle Paul had earlier requested his cloak, so he knew winter was coming. And I think part of the dynamic that's happening here is that Paul knows it's not going to be too long after winter that he's going to be martyred. You have to get here quick because it's not going to be too long after that that I'm going to be martyred. So he says, make every effort to come before winter. Uh, Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. Now, now three of those names are Latin, likely indicating that they were from Italy and were part of the church in Rome. Uh, now, we don't know much at all about these, um, that, these people. They, we know they're brethren because they're among the brethren. Paul says, he names four of them, but then he says, and all the brethren all the spiritual family, all the Christians who were in Rome. Some think um, that the Linus who's mentioned here is the, uh, is the man, when you look at the writings of Eusebius and Irenaeus, that he served in a kind of oversight pastoral role in the church of Rome. And that may very well be. 
So when you look outside of the scriptures, that may give us a clue as to who that man was. Um, but we don't really know much about these um, precious brethren. Timothy knew them, though. Think about it. When Timothy was in Rome with the Apostle Paul, when Paul writes his letters to uh, the Philippians and the Colossians, those are among the prison epistles. And Timothy was with him. You see Timothy identified in the opening verse. So, if Paul was imprisoned in Rome during his first Roman imprisonment, and Timothy was with him when we look at these epistles, it would stand to reason that Timothy knew some of these Roman brethren uh, that are listed here. And that brings us to the twofold benediction that ends this precious epistle. The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. Now the first benediction is specifically directed towards Timothy. The second appears to be directed to all the church. I say that because the second person pronoun, you, is plural in the second half of this verse. The Lord be with your spirit, and he's talking to Timothy specifically, singular. And then you get to the second half of the verse, grace be with you, plural. So was this a letter written to Timothy? Yes. And it's a very personal letter on so many levels. The Lord be with your spirit, Timothy. We'll speak more to what that means in a moment. But was it just for Timothy? No. It was for the church where Timothy was at, and it is for believers of all generations. It's for people to hear from all ages, all times, I should say, all um, centuries and so on. Grace be with you all. You might say at the end of the day, when Paul says to Timothy, the Lord be with your spirit, that's really all that he needed at the end of the day. What is Paul saying here? Well, you might think in your mind, well, Jesus is with Timothy, right? By virtue of the Holy Spirit's presence, like he's there. So why is Paul kind of in this, in this prayerfully wishing way saying, the Lord be with your spirit? I think when you look in the context at the end of this epistle, he's saying something like this. In light of the way that the Lord was with me and strengthened me in some of the darkest moments that I have experienced, he stood by me and he strengthened me. The Lord be with your spirit. May you know His presence and His strength, whatever comes your way, Timothy. Paul knew that there were tough days that were coming for Timothy. We find out at the end of the epistle to Hebrews that Timothy had been arrested. Tough days were coming for Timothy. And the Apostle Paul said, The Lord be with your spirit. As though he's saying, Even as He has been with me, may He be with you. And he turns his eye to, to the church, as it were, and says, Grace be with you. Who moan could be translated into English like this, You all. Grace be with you all. Which is, again, a good reminder to us that grace is not just something that comes to a believer at the inception of their Christian life. Grace is something that keeps coming. We are not only saved by grace, we are sustained by grace. We go from grace to glory. Although Paul wouldn't be with them much longer, the Lord would be. And so would His grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the precious Spirit-inspired text that we get to set our eyes upon. Thank You, Heavenly Father, for the way in which You refresh our hearts and renew our minds. 
Father, thank You for such great and precious promises that are yes and amen to us in Christ Jesus. To think that even as the Apostle Paul had confidence that he would be rescued from every evil deed and brought safely into the heavenly kingdom of his Lord, to think that we could join in having such confidence is amazing and precious. Father, may you increase our faith in your revealed promises. And may we live our lives on earth in view of heaven. And may you help us, Heavenly Father, by your grace, to run the race that is set before us with diligence, so that by your grace we might come to the finish line, knowing that we have fought the good fight, and that by your grace we have finished the race and kept the faith. We ask these things, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, Amen.